1: Welcome back. The Ontario Medical Association just elected a new president. He is Dr. Adam Kassem. He specializes in physical medicine and rehabilitation and practices at Sinai Health and Runnymede Healthcare Centre. And uh, just in time for this, the OMA has launched a new survey this week to find out what the views of Ontarians are when it comes to the future of healthcare they're going to use this survey to help develop recommendations for the province to address key priorities like the backlog of appointments caused by the pandemic and improved long-term care and palliative care services dr Kasam, welcome and congratulations kassam sorry dr kassam welcome and
2: congratulations Libby thank you so much for having me again actually and let me first yes. start off by saying that it's an incredible honor and responsibility to be the president of the you know When I reflect over the past 14 months, we have really all seen the incredible dedication, sacrifice that Ontario's doctors have made in the face of the pandemic. And whether it's our ER or our ICU doctors helping to keep sick COVID patients alive, our ID and public health doctors helping us to manage the spread of the disease, psychiatrists helping patients in increasingly frequent mental health crises, or even family doctors who are helping to mass vaccinate our population. This has really been an all-hands-on-deck approach for the profession, and I couldn't be more proud of my colleagues. Uh,
1: absolutely. Uh, w- so what's your priority? Is it trying to recover from this uh, backlog th- that's caused by this terrible
2: experience? So Libby, we have actually three priorities that I've set out for this for the course of the next year, and they're really inspired by the spirit of collaboration, compassion, and courage that we've seen from health, health, frontline healthcare workers. My first priority And the OMA's priority has been to to advocate for physicians. I think that we've all, again, better understood just how valuable doctors are to the health and well-being of our communities, And my my goal is to help advocate for my colleagues because ultimately I believe that well-supported doctors means healthier communities and better patient care. But to your point about where do we go from here and how do we recover collectively as as a society from the COVID-19 pandemic, that is a huge, huge concern for us and a massive priority that we are undertaking as an organization. And what it means for us is that we engage with our health system partners to build their roadmap for the future, which is why we are canvassing and asking the public and our partners to help us better understand what their priorities are for the future. You know, the pandemic has fundamentally altered the way in which healthcare is provided. And in order for us to be successful in what we hope is creating a modern and sustainable healthcare system for the the future, doctors I believe will have the tools and expertise to lead us on that journey. And we really want the input of of all of our stakeholders and patients and the public to help guide our, our work in that way. And then my last priority is OME modernization. It's a bit more of an inside baseball kind of thing, but, but our organization is undergoing one of the most significant overhauls of our governance structure, uh, in the past 140 years. And so I believe that this change and this process will help to make the OME a more accountable and effective one for our members.
1: Uh- you know, uh, one of the big changes in the pandemic was a lot more virtual medicine. And, and most people have had a pretty good experience of that, depending on, you know, uh, what is, uh, you know, what they're trying to treat. Uh, how do you see that? Do you see more use of technology? I mean, we have, uh, an aging population. We have limited resources. How do you see that?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Libby. You know, the um, the uptake of uh, of virtual care, so the adoption by both uh, the patient and and physician, has been substantial during the pandemic. It's been unlike anything that we've ever seen before, and, and this innovation, which, um, you know, as you were describing, perhaps can facilitate more access uh, in a more timely way is definitely uh, what I believe is will be a key pillar moving forward uh, as we transform our healthcare system. I think vir- virtual care in some capacity is here to stay. The question for for all of us really is how do we create a model that is not only sustainable but then appropriate uh, for use? So what we are seeing uh, in many ways is that that people are comfortable generally speaking with the platforms that they have access to. And what 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 we need to figure out is um, the role of virtual care in the, in the broader healthcare landscape and and, and, ho- and and ensure that it does not lead to fragmentation of our primary care uh, offerings for for the people of Ontario. Uh,
1: What about, you know, the role of primary care, your family doctor with these new Ontario health teams that um, I think most of them are up and running?
2: Well, actually, Libby. So they are currently being rolled out, um, and the pandemic has affected the the timeline for a lot of that rollout. And so, I think it really is still a work in progress with Ontario Health, the Ontario Health Networks, that, uh, and of course, the OHTs that you're you're alluding to. Uh, what we know to be certain, though, is that primary care and community doctors are going to have to be part of this um, of this network moving forward. They they are the foundation. Of care in this province seventy five percent of all care delivered to to the patients of Ontario happen in the community, which means that they don't they do not happen in hospitals and they don't happen in in tertiary centers. And so how do we, when we are thinking about modernizing our system, how do we ca- effectively capture uh, this, the, the, the majority of care that's delivered in a way that's equitable, but also efficient and sustainable.
1: Um, you know, I see here that you're, talk- you're talking about improved long-term care. That is, uh, you know, that's a whole other ministry. How do you see your role in that?
2: Well, I think the pandemic, of course, has has, has shone a lot of lights on on, on long-term care and, and, and the need for reform. Um, you know, when it when it and, and and this is perhaps a broader conversation about home care, even right? How do we and community care? So as we are aging as a population, as we are growing as a population, how can we move to a system that can support um, aging uh, in a in a comfortable but also an appropriate way? And how and what what a lot of policymakers are uh, are, are talking about and, and are discovering is that if we can create a system where people can actually age at home and we can provide care at home, which is you know oftentimes surrounded by loved ones or multi generational homes. Uh, that, may, that should be part of the solution that we look to as we think about the future.
1: You, you just, like, I'm, I'm thinking, should I get going on this? Because I'm going to get all excited. Um, I am in the midst of having a little experience with home care. And the LINs, which were supposed to be abolished, they've just changed their names. And uh, That
2: has to be a, a, a central thrust of, of any policy.
1: Um, yeah, because that—that's what we all want, and that's cheaper for the system.
2: I, I think you're right. I think that there are um, expectations moving forward out of this pandemic, not only from patients and families, but uh, but even healthcare policy circles that say, you know what, let's give this a long hard look. Let's tr- use this as um, a, an opportunity to, to to really make change and. I know that the OMA and the physicians of Ontario, who have, who day in and day out through this pandemic have been seeing patients, um, want want that system to improve as well.
1: Uh, yeah, and and do you know if the, uh, the name change of the Lin is in fact uh, going to try to pass as as uh, the change?
2: Uh, so I'm, I'm not quite sure what you're asking, Libby. I, I know that the Lin's used to be CCAC, and now they're they're going to be moving to an Ontario Health team. Uh, uh sort of nomenclature but i think that that's still in, is being rolled out region by region so that hasn't yet been fully baked and i know that uh, physicians especially primary care doctors are actively involved uh, in trying to ensure that uh, the care is delivered in, in the best way
1: uh-huh and uh again do do you think the role of the of physicians is is central enough in the system now
2: i think that physicians have shown through this pandemic, Libby, that uh, there is no effective health care system without physicians and in our expertise. And so, moving forward, they have to be, and we have to be a central pillar uh, to any kind of reform because we have the experience, we have the expertise, we have the tools, we have the knowledge, and and we have the desire to to see improvement. And I think doctors are perfectly. Uh, skilled and suited uh, to to be leaders in that way, and I and I and I intend to champion that cause over the course of the next year.
1: Anything else you want to leave us with?
2: Well, I just want to tell your your listeners that I understand, and doctors understand just how much they've been through. Uh, as much as we talk about healthcare heroes and, and and frontline workers and and all of their sacrifices, Ontarians have made significant sacrifices, and we appreciate and we know that you've had. A tough time, and what I can tell you is that we're seeing the light of the at the end of the tunnel now with these vaccines. We want people to get fully vaccinated. We want people to reach out to their doctors if they are trying, if they feel like they uh, have been delaying care or, or or haven't seen a doctor in some time, because their their recovery, their rehabilitation from all this, is essential for all of us to to be successful. We want. Uh, school, you know, want schools open and people back in school. Hopefully, in a safe way, we want uh, the economy to reopen in a safe way. We want to be able to get over this pandemic, and I do think that uh, people of Ontario deserve uh, our thanks for for all the sacrifices that they have made.
1: Dr. Adam Kassem, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Libby, thank you so much for having me.
1: Bye bye. That's all the time we have for today. Remember, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. So if we couldn't get to your call today or at any point during the week, it's the day that we get to talk about what is at the top of your agenda. That's all the time for Thursday.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Snyder on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back.
1: In the aftermath of the discovery of the mass burial of 215 indigenous child victims of the former Kamloops BC residential school and not to mention the toppling of the statue of Egerton Ryerson, Ryerson, excuse me, one Toronto neighborhood is calling for the removal of another statue. It depicts Alexander Wood a Scottish merchant and magistrate in Upper Canada who apparently was the center of a sex scandal in 1810. Now, the twist here is that this statue is not a holdover from colonial times. It was erected at the request of the community in 2005 when Wood was hailed as an early gay pioneer. The Church Wellesley BIA now wants the statue removed after they discovered that he had passed links to an organization called, and I quote, the Society for the Converting and Civilizing the Indians and Propagating the Gospel Among Destitute Settlers in Upper Canada. Now, Wood's statue, which again was erected in May 2005, cost $200,000, partly paid for by taxpayers. So what do you think? 416 360 toll-free 866 740 Let's go to Christopher Hudspeth, who is chair of the Church Wellesley Village Business Improvement Area. Hi, Christopher.
3: Hello. Thank you for having me on today.
1: Okay. So, um, you know, this statue was put up not very long ago at the request of the community. We even have uh, your councillor, Kristen Wong, Tam's name on the plaque. Uh, wasn't he researched before you did that?
3: Well, I wasn't the chair at the time. Uh, it was 16 years ago. It was a completely different board, Um I would assume they did some research on him at the time, uh, as there's information on the plaque. But uh, I don't expect that the information was as readily available as it was to me to, you know, over the past several days, being that these things have now been digitized and put online. But uh, I would hope that there was some investigation.
1: Yeah, because it's interesting because it's noted that he he was accused of sexual assault.
3: Yeah, and, uh, you know, I in 2021, I don't think we trivialize that, especially considering what's going on in Canada's military today.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it, it's kind of, uh, it's interesting to me um, how much attitudes have shifted, I mean, even in a fairly short period of time, 15, 16 years.
3: Yes, that's true. Uh,
1: so, um you want to uh, get rid of this statue. Uh, when it was erected, it was paid for partly by taxpayers and partly by the BIA. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I understand that the city has said to you, hey, it's your statue. You You can do whatever you want with it
3: well we realize that we have been the guardians of this statue uh for some time uh you know it has been our responsibility to make sure that it stays in good repair but you know that being said uh the bia shared the cost of this with the city of toronto uh 50 cost share the city of toronto paid for the installation of the statue it sits on city property and we feel that we have a joint responsibility here to deal with this. The response of the city has been that it's our responsibility to remove it. But seeing as you know we uh, have had this joint responsibility in putting it there, we feel that it would have been a better decision for the city to have come back and said, we will work together to try to come up with a solution rather than just throwing it back at us.
1: Do you know how much it would cost to remove it?
3: I no, no. I mean, the information that we found uh, has only been very recent, uh, within the past week. So you know, we haven't had the opportunity to look at those options. Um, You know, but being that the city has people, resources, money, and even equipment. That at their disposal, um, we feel that they should be a partner in trying to help us find a way of dealing with
4: us.
1: What do you say to people who say, hey, the city was being nice in helping the community fund a project that it wanted, that it originated? and, uh, you know, a a taxpayer, totally unrelated taxpayer, saying, hey, some of my money went to that. Uh, Now you want to take it down. You know, why should why should a taxpayer be on the hook for that?
3: Well, I mean, I think it it was all tax money. Originally, BIAs uh, receive a levy from their uh, members, which is also tax money. So, you know, um, I mean, there's there is that. But you know, it's also a social responsibility and governments like the city have the abilities and uh the you know funds in order to assist in, in dealing with problems like this uh, most certainly you know they were involved in the erecting of it it's their archives that we found this information in as well so i mean i think there's also responsibility there this wasn't Difficult information to find once we started looking. Uh, once I knew that there was some sort of connection of wood to the society last Thursday, you know, it was a lot of keystrokes, but, uh, you know, no trips to the actual library to get the information. And what
1: made you start looking for this?
3: A uh Employee of ours, very part-time, who takes minutes for our meeting, uh, Margaret Wagner, uh, pointed out that uh, Alexander Wood belonged to the Society after doing some research of her own on a book that she was writing. uh happens to be set in that time period in the city of Toronto. So she was doing some research, stumbled across this, and it came to my attention on Thursday.
1: Now, as I mentioned, uh, your counselor, Kristen Wong-Tam, uh, was involved in advocating to get this statue built mm-hmm. or cast. Uh, and she acknowledged that in a statement, but uh, she isn't showing her face to talk about it. What do you think of that?
3: Well, I mean, I, I think that's unfortunate. Uh, you know, the response... Uh, from the councillor, which is the only response we've received. I have not had an official response from the mayor and even reaching out to his office this morning. Still don't uh, have any communication directly with his office. Um, you know, she you know, squarely wants to throw it back into our laps as our problem, and uh, so I guess that's maybe the reason. I don't know.
1: Uh. Finally, uh, in addition to the statue, uh, you've got an Alexander Street and you've got a Wood Street named for this guy. And I know that uh, the the mayor said, you know, we're waiting to hear from the city on what to do about all these street names. What, What would you like to see happen with those?
3: Well, that's interesting because we in our area, we also have a neighborhood association who works very closely on. Uh, street namings as well as uh, naming laneways and parks and and things so we really uh, definitely took a step back on that one uh, and we would like their involvement more I do know that they'll be meeting uh, in an upcoming board meeting and discussing this more thoroughly but uh, you know that something that we felt was more appropriate for them to uh, take a look at
1: so are are you going to remove the statue if you've got to pay for the whole shot?
3: Well, I mean, we would like the statue to be able to be kept as a teachable moment somewhere uh, where I think someday a whole lot of statues could exist. <laughs> um, you know, we, we most certainly have called for other areas, other cities, towns, BIAs, to look at what's in their own backyards and uh, reflect on why they're there but uh you know we will we'll take a look at alternatives I mean again, it's early days, but we uh we most certainly don't want to erase the history uh we think it's important to know where we have been and where we're going, but not uh we don't need the symbolism sitting in the middle of our village
1: okay. I get that. Christopher Hudspeth, we're going to stay on top of this. Please inform us about developments. We appreciate talking to
3: you. Thank you.
1: Okay. Uh, we're going to take another break. When we come back, the new head of the Ontario Medical Association.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. I'm guessing here, but I'm thinking that as the pandemic is finally easing, the vaccine rollout is more or less on track and the province is finally starting to reopen, election spending is not top of mind for most of us. But it is clearly the priority for the ford government because they are set to override the constitution to get their way on election spending law and they have recalled the legislature to do it now the government expanded limits on election spending by third parties limits that were originally imposed by the win liberal government the progressive conservatives wanted these limits to apply a year before an election rather than 6 months but a court struck that down so rather than appealing they're set to invoke the notwithstanding clogs to make this law stand and they threatened to do this back in 2018 remember over the changes to the electoral map uh, in Toronto municipally they didn't end up doing and it is of course something Quebec has done and is doing one way or another. Now, among the many criticisms is that it's using a sledgehammer to kill a fly, but it is exactly a year before an election, and the negative ads have started to appear. We're going to look at all sides of this. I want to hear from people. The numbers, 416 360-0740, Three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty, and first I'm going to go to someone who has worked very closely with Doug Ford. I'd like to welcome David Tarrant, who is a conservative strategist and vice president of national strategic communications at Enterprise. He was executive director of strategic communications in Premier Doug Ford's office and co-author of the twenty. 20- 2018 Ontario PC election platform uh, welcome this is your first time on the show thank you so much
5: hey Libby listen thanks for having me on I really look forward to it
1: okay uh, so um, what uh, what is the government's rationale for doing this and doing it in this way
5: well it, it, I mean what you see is what you guess in terms of what's happening in Ontario across Canada or even if you look at south of the border in the United States uh, there's a real issue with what they call soft money, which is uh, extremely wealthy interests, uh, millions of dollars of soft money that go outside the party system. This is not money people donate to political parties or to candidates. They, fund, they go to shadowy kind of third-party groups who basically then uh, swamp, swamp the, uh, the electoral system, uh, with whether, it be, whether it's negative ads, whether it's, whether it's attacks, whether it's misinformation or disinformation, uh, at, to a level that's far beyond what the parties spend. And it's a real threat to our democracy. And so the fundamental issue here is uh, the Ford government's trying to keep all the soft, dirty money from allowing people to try to buy elections. And uh, that's something that quite frankly all parties have agreed on in the past.
1: Okay, are are you saying that when uh, a union that is opposed to the government uh, buys an ad, that's soft, dirty money?
5: I'm saying that, that it, first of all, it's not just unions. No, no, uh, it's there's, not there's, just there's, unions. There's, but uh, there is, there is when any try when if, if a stakeholder tries to uh, with, with that's very well healed, that can spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on ads or other or or other forms of information campaigning that quite frankly are directly involved with with supporting or influencing an election uh, that has a corrosive effect on our democracy, Louis. Do you have
1: and, do you have an example of that here where it's it's <clears> not a group that opposes the government like a union?
5: Well yeah, there been have been I mean, listen, one of the biggest boogeyman in, in, in Ontario politics, well people on the left for Liberals or the Democrats is Ontario Proud. Right. Ontario Proud is a third party group that spends money uh, uh going after going after kind of left wing politicians.
1: They uh, that kind of money? I don't think so.
5: Well, you know, yeah, I don't I don't I I, I don't think there's
1: anything like a super PAC, but uh, what do you say to people who say that it's it's uh Anti-democratic, and that it's using a, a sledgehammer to kill a fly. I mean, this was a court decision. Why not just appeal the court decision?
5: Well, I mean, the first part of it is what's anti-democratic is, is actually allowing moneyed interests to influence an election and, you know, and influence the electoral process in ways that fundamentally aren't accountable, right? Every single person, no matter what, if you're with a trade association, if you're with the Ontario Proud, if you're with a union, if you're with a, if you're a political party, you're a candidate. Everyone still has free speech. Everyone can still write a blog or put something on Twitter or hold a press conference. What's happened is what this prevents is people with more money. And, we, and, and doing something similar to what we see as Citizen United, uh, Citizens United in the United States, where people with more money was a vastly superior financial means to use their wealth to tilt an election in their interest. What do you and say- quite frankly, when one side has all the money uh, and, and that side is completely unregulated and there's no transparency – that does have a corrosive impact on our elections.
1: Well, the previous limits don't mean totally unregulated. What do you say to people who are most concerned about invoking the notwithstanding clause over this? Well, well,
5: well section, listen, the so called notwithstanding clause is Section 33 of the Charter, right? It's part of the Constitution, it's part of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And Pierre Trudeau and the premiers back 40 years ago put it in there precisely as a counterbalance that, that allowed elected representatives to make clear decisions on policy when, 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 when the Charter Jewish jurisprudence was not actually uh, 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 serving public ends. It's, it's, a, it's a tool. Uh, governments that use it are publicly accountable for how they use it. Uh, and and I'm sure the critics are, are all, getting all worked up about using Section 33. I find all the talk about the Charter, uh, quite frankly, it's a diversion, Libby, because the fundamental—what's being debated here is, is do you believe— Millions of dollars, soft money, should be influencing uh, 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 Ontario politics in that election year. And if you oppose this change, you believe, yes, I do like the American system. I do like the American super PAC system. Because the matter being discussed and debated in the legislature is specific only to one specific change based on one court decision should soft money be used to influence election campaigns.
1: Yeah, but what, I mean, just hear me out here. What a lot of people are confused about is that if we start invoking the notwithstanding clause all over the place, we will end up with laws like some of the laws they have in Quebec or are working on in Quebec, which the rest of us uh, think are unconstitutional.
5: No one I know, uh, I of the Ford governments, talking about invoking Notwithstanding clause all over the place. They're talking about using Section 33 of the Constitution in a very specific case to protect the integrity of the elections. If someone was to come tomorrow and say, "Oh, I want to use the notwithstanding clause," to you know, uh,
1: well, you were going yeah, to use it to, to change the electoral map in Toronto uh, in the middle of an election.
5: The uh, you know, listen, if you go back. to I mean, I was there in, in 2018. Uh, that this is an example of why a notwithstanding clause is important. What you had was a patently flawed. Uh, judicial decision uh... that was quite frankly in humiliating fashion struck down by a higher court who basically concluded that the judge the judge under that initial ruling was well out of the depth right if you look at the, how the appeal court ruled on his, on, on his decision we knew that we knew that the decision was bad uh... and so they... it so the notwithstanding clause put in a piece of legislation precisely to ensure that bad law didn't have a corrosive effect on society they ended up not having to u- need, use to pass that, that bill because the higher course struck it down. But but it gives an option to ensure, in the case when the the, 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 uh, the uh, after-effects or the knock-on effects of a judicial decision uh, uh, are not in the public interest, it's actually part of the Charter. Like, Section 33 is not overriding the Charter, it's not overriding the Constitution, it's part of the Charter. Uh, so, t- it's, it's, it's so, so, I mean, it's a tool that governments, uh, that, that was put in place deliberately to ensure that governments have this power uh, in case of emergency, when they need it.
1: Well, most people see it as, as a, a tool of, of last resort. But so my final question, and tell me if I am way off base here, but the premier uh, talks about his good friend, Francois Legault, a lot. And I'm sure he watches that Francois Legault can invoke or preemptively invoke the notwithstanding clause. And, uh, nobody bats an eye. And, and is he just thinking, well, why don't we do it here? Uh, is, do you think that's part of his thinking?
5: Now, I, I think it's probably reading a little too far into it, Libby. Uh, I, listen, I don't, I don't, I can't, I'm not going to claim to know what what the premiers thinking uh, day and night. I think what they put in place, the well, they is a clear piece of public interest legislation to limit uh, 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 an influx of millions of dollars of, of, of third party outside spending. They hoped that the that the you know this would clearly stand muster uh, a particular judge in a particular case. Uh, made a decision that that uh, you know a lawyer could come and say they believe it's it, it's right, or they believe it's wrong, or they believe it's flawed, but they believe that's clearly in, and harmful to the public interest. And and regardless what happens in Quebec or what happens in other provinces, they decided that 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 given that controlling the influx of soft money is is in the public interest, they use the tool that the constitution gives them, that the charter gives them, to ensure the public interest is protected. And and that, quite frankly, is how the constitution is supposed to work, Libby. So, so I'm not sure if, 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 you know, if, if Legault consciously influenced what the what Premier Ford has done here. Uh, I think this quite question stands on its own merits.
1: Okay. Thank you so much for that perspective, David Tarrant, Conservative Strategist and Vice President of National Strategic Communications at Enterprise. Appreciate your time.
5: Thanks for the time, Libby. Appreciate it.
1: Okay. Let's bring in the Ontario Liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca. Hello, Stephen.
5: Good afternoon,
6: Libby. Thanks for having me back on.
1: Well, thanks for coming on. I'm uh, assuming you were listening to David Tarrant. Uh, what's, what's your view of all this?
6: I, um, you know, it's a little bit hard for me to listen to. Uh, no disrespect to your your previous guest, but uh, look, I'll give him top marks for repeating ad nauseum the political spin coming from Doug Ford's campaign team. Uh, but virtually none of what he said makes any sense in this scenario, and. I will say from him and from the government so far, including the letter we saw from the government House Leader Paul Calandra yesterday, the flippant way that they are choosing to talk about their groundbreaking, in a negative way, decision to invoke the notwithstanding clause is really, really despicable. Uh, they either, uh, they clearly don't understand uh, the way this entire system has worked now through four decades. And for your listeners, let me just say, The Notwithstanding Clause has existed in the Constitution for four decades. It's never been used in the province of Ontario, not by a former Conservative Premier, not by an NDP Premier, and not by a Liberal Premier. And in three years, Doug Ford has threatened once to use it prior to today, and has now chosen to use it. He has no respect for the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. He has no respect for democracy. And that's because he's interested in one thing and one thing only His re-election chances come next year, and again, it's despicable.
1: Do you think that he looks at his uh, buddy, Francois Legault, in Quebec and saying, hey, are we chopped liver? If he can do it, why can't I? No,
6: I think Doug Ford looks in the mirror and realizes he's only in this business for himself and for his well-connected friends. And now for a couple of months, we have seen his entire government being run by his campaign team and by the partisan polling and the partisan ads that they've been running more than a year out from this election uh, that's coming up next year. And I think they got caught off guard with the judge's decision. Uh, They were really hoping that they could trample all over with their legislation uh, some of the fundamental freedoms that are protected in the charter. I think they got caught off guard. And instead of taking a thoughtful approach, you mentioned this to the previous caller, a previous guest, instead of doing what they did last time, which is to go and seek an immediate stay of the judge's decision, why they appealed, they said, no, to heck with that. People don't care about the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We're going to go straight to the so-called nuclear option, invoke the notwithstanding clause, treat the Charter like it's their own personal political doormat. I just think it's so crass and so calculating and frankly, cowardly on the part of Doug Ford.
1: Why? What's the danger of doing that? I mean, uh, our previous guest said, hey, it's just part of uh, the system that we have. No biggie.
6: Yeah, well, look, uh, there will never be a day in my life where I will refer to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms as no biggie. And that, that those are to, my words. <laughs> well, no, I know. But I heard your call. I heard your previous guest and that you are right. That is, in essence, what he said. Like, there's nothing to see here. And that just speaks to such a, a wanton disregard for the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, something that I think Ontarians and Canadians hold dear. I mean, the protection of something like freedom of speech, freedom of expression, Freedom of association and so much more to just say, look, not a big deal. We're just going to trample all over that because we're very focused on an election next year. Uh, makes uh, again, I, I keep coming back to the word "despicable" because that's what it is. And there's so much evidence now on the record in the last couple of months that Doug Ford is no longer governing; he is exclusively campaigning. That it's actually starting to be nauseating, I think, for 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 the people of Ontario. There's but, a whole bunch of other stuff, by the but, way, that you're you know that they're talking about that again makes no sense.
1: But, but back to this, hurt. back to this question, you know, yeah. just as a citizen, uh, you know, you're talking about how dearly we hold this and, and maybe a lot of us do, but people look next door at Quebec and, and you see, you know, uh, the prime minister doesn't bat an eye when Quebec does it. Nobody's going to say a word. Uh, so, you know, what the heck?
6: Yeah, but look, Libby. with the greatest of respect, I I don't live in Quebec, and I'm not the prime minister. I'm running to be premier of this province. I know that I hold the Charter of Rights and Freedoms really dearly. I know that my friends, my neighbors, my family, and millions of Ontarians do as well. And I think Doug Ford will truly end up regretting his decision to use this nuclear option. Second time he's considered it, first time he's doing it in less than three years, when nobody, not even Mike Harris, used the notwithstanding clause while he was the conservative premier of this province. That's how far... Doug Ford is willing to go to save his own political skin. And let me just point out when your previous guest in this government talks about soft money and American style PAC and all this other stuff. Look, the bottom line is in 2018, when Doug Ford benefited from this kind of third party intervention or advocacy during the election campaign, I didn't hear him complain. I didn't hear his team complain. They, they accepted that it was part of the whole sort of free speech argument. That's fine. They're talking about big money in quotes, and they're raising the specter of corporate, well-moneyed interests. If they don't believe in getting support from big money, to, you know, well-connected interests, why did they recently double the donation limits? Uh, up until a few months ago, you could only donate, an individual could only donate $1,625 to a political party in Ontario. Just a couple of months ago, Doug Ford doubled that up to $3,300. I mean, the, the discrepancy and the hypocrisy that's at the core of everything that they're talking about is just insane for me to listen to. And again, it's because they think this is the weekend when people are going to be reopening our economy. People don't care about the charter. People don't care about government. They don't care about any of this. We're going to do it under the cover of night. We're going to rush it through the legislature. It is so, so dangerous and so, so reckless. And it proves to me, Doug Ford, he has to go.
1: Okay, just final question before we go. So is is there no merit to the argument? I mean, we do look at the states and see those super PACs and see uh, the nefarious influence they have on the discourse. Is there no danger of that here?
6: I don't believe there's a real danger, but regardless if like, you know, if Doug was prepared to engage in a thoughtful adult like conversation about this, I would say to him if he called me, Seek a stay and appeal the decision if you feel on legal terms that it's dangerous or wrong. That's what they did last time when they climbed off the ledge, when he thought about invoking the notwithstanding clause the previous time. He's choosing not this time. Uh, Just really quickly, by the way, both of these cases, the last time for the city of Toronto municipal election and this time, there's a really painful kind of refrain here. Doug Ford seems to be quite convinced the notwithstanding clause is the best way to go about trampling on democratic issues, election issues. That is so fundamental to our democracy, to our province. The fact that he doesn't get it or doesn't care about it shows to me that he is reckless and dangerous. And again, he has to go.
1: Very strong words, uh, Stephen Del Duca. Thank you for being with us.
6: Thank you, Libby. I appreciate it.
1: Okay. I'm going to take uh, at least one quick call from Pat in Toronto before we get to Michael Bryant. Hi, Pat.
4: Good afternoon. Um, Yes, it's very concerning. I suggest, and I just did it this morning. Everybody, go back and read the Globe and Mail investigative journalistic report of May twenty fifth, two thousand and thirteen. You will then understand the man. And so I, I see that piece. I see that supposedly his net worth has gone from three, from three million to fifty million dollars, uh, and. The, the other piece that ties in is how the man is just bulldozing anything he wants in the planning area. We've now got these MZO ability, ministerial zoning orders, where basically Doug Ford and his uh, underlings can basically do anything for anybody in the province with regard to planning. Okay, and Pat. the issue is well known that the money's coming in from the developers, so... Lastly, there is a rumor that the reason Mr. Tabner was on okay, the list. Pat, we knew Pat, Mr. we're Tabner. sticking
1: Pat, we've got to stick to this topic and I have to move this along, but I get that you are very concerned about this and I appreciate your call. Okay, uh it's time uh, and and uh, callers, patiently, I will get to other callers right now. I want to bring in Michael Bryant, he's the Executive Director and General Counsel of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and he is also a former Liberal Attorney General. Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you?
3: Good, good, good.
1: So, uh, what bothers you more, this business about invoking the Notwithstanding Clause, or uh, what you're calling an infringement of free speech?
6: Uh, Well, uh, I guess it's the latter, because the uh, invoking of the Notwithstanding Clause permits the infringement of free speech. And uh, there's two concerns constitutionally. Um, It is in the Constitution. So, uh, you know, I don't want to pretend like it's not there and it's not a power. Uh, It's just, just, you know, it's never been used in Ontario before. So it's a big deal when it gets used. Um, It does get used in Quebec a lot more. Uh, I think what's uh, particularly um, interesting legally and constitutionally and from a rights perspective is, you know, when you think of the big examples that it's been used by Quebec, it's with respect to language rights uh, or uh, with respect to, you know, laicité, the restrictions they put on religious symbols. And in both cases... Quebec says, look, this is what the people want. We got elected with a mandate to do this, so we're going to infringe on language rights. We're going to infringe on freedom of religion. Why? Well, because we were elected to do this, and I know courts, you say otherwise, but this is what we're going to do. In this case, what's different about it is that it is about the election. This is about who can spend what uh, during the election. So my concern is that this is, you know, just cravenly self-interested and the reason it's self-interested is this in the last election you know working families uh, ontario which was one of the uh coalitions that spent um uh, a bunch of money uh in the last election i guess against conservatives uh they spent um uh i think it was around uh $400,000. Four hundred thousand. I'm just looking. I just tweeted about this. They spent about four hundred thousand in the in the previous election. Um, the uh, Ontario Proud, which uh, is you know conservative leaning, um, supports um, sorry Working Families Ontario spent two hundred eighty two thousand. Ontario Proud spent about four hundred and forty seven thousand. So if you add up all the third party spending and you get rid of all that then it means that the only people who are allowed to advertise during the election are the parties.
0: Mm-hmm. And right
6: now, obviously, the Conservatives have a big advantage over the others because they're in the incumbents, just like the Liberals were in the last election. And so you can expect that they will outspend their opponents. And what it means is that the Conservative message gets out. And, you know, if they can raise more money than the other parties, well, then that's part of democracy. But um, the other parties... Who, sorry, the other people and the, and the and the so-called third party. So Ontario Proud, Association of Municipalities. I mean, if you look at the list of third parties, it's kind of it's interesting uh, some of the names and what some of them spend. But firstly, they're not huge numbers. They're all under a million dollars. And so to compare that to what happens in the United States, uh, it just doesn't hold up. The Koch brothers spend billions. Uh, in election advertising, in in Ontario, a group like Working Families Ontario spends less than a quarter of a million.
1: Let Let me ask you this, though, because this is based on something that that you said that sort of you know gave me a little pause. You said it's not like we've got the NRA here, but it, is this a question of principle or is it a question of who has the the money to deploy?
6: I, I it it's well the principle is free speech and a fair election. And and then the second one is, I mean, it wasn't the, when I said the NRA, I mean the NRA is is an, an example of an organization that spends hundreds of millions of dollars in an election. I, I meant NRA as a big spender and the Koch brothers as a big spender.
1: Uh, that have uh, very, very right-wing views. Uh, you, sure, okay, yeah. but uh, um, uh,
6: the big spenders on the left are, um, you know, George Soros and... Um, and and unions and well, Bloomberg, uh, you know, are, are, are big spenders on the left. But yeah, the, the big spenders on the right in um, in the U.S. tend to outspend the big spenders on the left. In um, in in if you look at the third party spending, um, and you know, you'd have to add it up and characterize it. Uh, it's not you don't have those uh you know the biggest right-wing spender um is as i said ontario proud and you know they're spending they spent four hundred forty seven thousand dollars in the last election and you know the parties spent in the millions so uh, it's not it's so. in my point is just invoking the american example is uh it's an argument but it just doesn't hold up the legal problem with using the notwithstanding clause, is that it allows a government to infringe people's rights. Um, And in this case, it it allows them to infringe people's rights um, based on a a court decision. So that's the concern, is that this will mean overall the erosion of people's rights, and as you can imagine, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association does not want an erosion of people's rights. But just Uh, in case you think, this is um, uh, a pox on the Conservative House no, uh, the it was the liberals who brought in this third party spending limit in the first place a couple years ago. Yes. And in there and they put in place a um, six month limit. On, they put in uh, they put in restrictions on spending within a six month window. CCLA went to the legislature and said that's unconstitutional. When the conservatives did it, we went in there and said the same thing. We were. um We opposed what the Liberals did in uh, 2017, I think it was, when they brought in that, when they passed that legislation. And in B.C., the B.C. government tried to do this as well, except they limited the restrictions to 40 days. So not six months like the Liberals or 12 months like the Conservatives, but 40 days. And in that case, the court struck that down and said, you can't restrict third-party speech, uh, uh, political speech particularly, um, around an election, it just it violates our constitution, and uh, and it gives too big an advantage to the incumbent government.
1: So, Michael, final question: If if they do, if they pass this, is that it? No recourse? Uh,
6: there's a, a couple of possibilities, uh, and um, uh, one of them is to challenge the notwithstanding clause bill that's before the House right now uh, on the basis that, in effect, it is. Um, trying to overturn Section 3 rights under the Constitution, which are democratic rights. And the Constitution says that Section 33 can't be used on democratic rights. Uh, and the second thing is that we could, we could go back and challenge the, uh, the 12-month law under Section 3, and they couldn't use the notwithstanding clause on that. Both of them would presume that we could all get to court quick enough to do this in time for it to have an impact before the next election, and I don't know if that's possible with our current court system.
1: Okay, uh, it's uh, fascinating, and we'll stay on top of this. And thanks so much for your perspective. Michael Bryant, head of the Civil Liberties Association. Okay, as promised, going to get quickly, I hope, to a couple of those calls. Bill in Toronto. Hi, Bill.
5: Hi, I'm a member of one of the biggest unions in Canada. They support, uh, obviously, left-wing politicians. And I've complained numerous times about my union dues being used to fund Fund them, and also internally they launch a campaign against any right wing, any conservatives that are running. And I told them, I said, I don't want my money. You, you have no right to take my money and use it for, for politics that I don't support. I wanted the money to go to charity. That can't happen. They basically said, too bad. So I support for it. Get the union. Unions and government have been in bed for a hundred years. Time, time to, to split them out
1: well I mean your your issue is is a very uh, it's clearly an issue but it's it's kind of a different issue but I hear you that is one of the problems well Libby when you're funding a union and you go to work and you have meeting, no choice you three right three or four emails from them telling you how to vote that that's
3: pretty offensive to me I,
1: I totally get that I totally get that so um, Bill thanks for your call Thanks. Okay. Jason in Etobicoke, very quickly, please. Oh, I uh, hey, uh, just wanted to say that I believe that this is entirely unconstitutional. The government, the laws have
6: said that it's an abuse of power clearly trying to gerrymander things towards the conservatives. Go figure that they passed this law the same day that it shows in a recent poll that the NDP is at neck and neck with the conservatives. Now, they're passing this law because they uh, and uh, because it's. Clearly, they've clearly spent four years attacking workers, and now they don't want workers to have a voice. What they do want is their rich donors to be able to funnel money through Mattamy Homes into uh, Ontario Proud. Doug Ford didn't have a problem with that, and I'm sure your previous conservative uh, uh, person who called in didn't have a problem with that either. So this is a matter about who gets the talk.
1: Okay. Jason in Etobicoke, thanks for your call. Thank you. We've got to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about a question of taking down another statue of uh, an old white guy. So uh, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 740 740 This time it's happening in an organized process. It's uh, actually a very interesting story and we will get the details when we come back.